Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. And with me, as always, today is the doctor and the reverend, David Gushy. Um, I've got my coffee, so I'm ready to go. How are you feeling, David? I feel exhausted at the end of a long week. We're recording this on the Friday after the election. And, uh, you know, as our listeners will know, I follow politics pretty closely, and it's been a fairly exhausting week. So I'm tired, but I'm ready to talk about something other than politics. Absolutely. So if you're listening from the future, we are still recording uh, at distance over the phone because of uh, COVID-19 concerns. If you're... uh, if you're listening from the past, uh, give me a call. I need to warn you about some stuff. If you're listening from the future, give me a call. You need to warn me about some things. Um, anyway, That's good stuff, I, I'm, tr- I'm trying. I'm working on the bits here. These are uh, we're just we're rolling. That's that's the genius that flows from the seat of this office. So plus the coffee. Plus the yes the. Uh, whew, we were speaking of the election drama. My church is a polling place, which causes so much extra headache whenever there's an election, but it's good to be a part of the civil process and an important part of our community. But all that to say, yeah. they bring good coffee with them and they left their, they took all their other snacks, but they left their Starbucks uh, coffee. So I've moved up this week and I'm drinking extremely caffeinated Starbucks stuff. So I'm ready to go. And today we were thinking we'd talk a bit about uh, the church, uh, what it's meant, what your journey with the church has been, uh, how the church is doing and where the church is going. Uh, Does that still sound good to you? Yeah. Yes. Let's let's see that. All in 30 to 35 minutes. Yeah. Let's see if we can pull that off in in your... um, in your memoir, Still Christian, which if y'all haven't read it, you should go find that book. I'll post a link. And also the audiobook is really well done. Uh, you talk a little about your early life with the church. Would you run us through some of that? How you found your how you found yourself positioned as a in a Christian family, and then what it meant for you to kind of find the Baptist world. Sure. Um the dominant religious influence in my childhood was my mother, uh, who was raised um, a very Irish Catholic in Western Pennsylvania. I think she was two generations removed from the Irish immigrant. Um, and my father was a non-practicing kind of Baptist uh, when they got married. I don't think religion was much of a feature in his life at the early stages of their marriage. So mom was in charge, and as all the kids kept coming, she she took us all to the Catholic Church there in Vienna, Virginia. Um, so I was the oldest of four, and we were raised to do the Catholic thing, which uh, left little impression on me. Um, uh, there must have been a First Communion. I don't remember it. What I do remember is a confirmation process when I was about 13, in a class full of kids who seemed indifferent to everything that was being told. Mm-hmm. And, and a, um, and teachers who were, um, for the first time, including the priests, attempting to inculcate some serious Catholic doctrine in a, 
in a group that was largely impervious to it. Um, the way I look back on that early Catholic experience was it was post-Vatican II, which happened in the mid-60s and involved a lot of uh, reconsideration and reform of Catholic liturgy and some theology. And the conservative side of the Catholic Church has always felt that Vatican II went too far and that it destabilized the tradition and instruction of young people and really of the people as a whole. Mm-hmm. The progressive side liked the, the enhanced emphasis on a church that belongs to all the people, uh, social justice teachings, global concern. Uh, there was a lot of good that came out of Vatican II. Um, but anyway, 1975, I was 13 years old. I got confirmed. I was rebellious about the process. Um, and I told my mom, uh, I'm done. I'm not, I mean, I'll, do, I'll do confirmation because you tell me to, but I don't want to have to go much after this. So I wandered in the spiritual wilderness. I would describe myself as, at that time, quite religiously interested, quite spiritually sensitive, but turned off to the Catholic Church. That's so interesting um, that you go through, and, and that's that's a lot of young people's story, too, not just in Catholicism, but also uh, I've worked with Lutheran congregations, and I was raised in a Presbyterian church where I was baptized and confirmed in that same sort of cycle. And a lot of people go through that it true initiation ritual and then quit. Yeah. It's like it's you graduate exact out. Opposite. Right. It's the exact opposite of what's supposed to happen, right? Um so so from the years of about fourteen to sixteen, I I did things like go to the churches of my friends and read about uh the paranormal and um and think about what the spiritual dimension is, while also being a an adolescent doing adolescent things. Uh, part of adolescence is finding love. I and my first girlfriend was a was a Southern Baptist kid. Um, oh, the story was, writes itself. It was the story <laughs> writes itself, right? So, um, but what, what was interesting about it was that she was a, a rebellious Southern Baptist kid. She was to her Baptist identity as I was to my Catholic identity. But the difference was. Her parents made her keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Did they care so that anyway, she was unequally yoked to a Catholic? Um, well, they, I think so. And they were also just concerned about her lack of... Um, she just wasn't all in with the Baptist thing, but she, she was participating because she had to. Um, so in the summer of my 16th year, I, uh, I had a conversion experience at her church when she was out of state on a family vacation. And two weeks after she came back, I was baptized in her church. And it was, it was quite something. But I, that, that conversion experience was one of those life-shaping events that is really hard to fully comprehend. And I wrestled with it a lot in, in my memoir, Still Christian. Who was that boy? What was he looking for? Why did he wander up the steps of a Baptist church on a Friday afternoon uninvited, not knowing if anybody was there, and opened the door just to see what was I looking for. And what I ran into was friendly people and, and a youth minister who knew a, a prospect when he saw one, mm-hmm. and a well-planned weekend, a youth-oriented weekend that summer. And by Monday night, I was saying the sinner's prayer and inviting Jesus into my heart. That was the four days after works. I walked in the church. What? The system works. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, 
That's uh, how everyone thinks it's supposed to go. I know, and it never, never works out. How right? odd I that mean, you, as a rebellious, lapsed Catholic, fell for the traditional Southern Baptist evangelism plan for teenagers. I know. Uh, it is odd. I mean, and, you know, now I know that a lot of the kids in that group are like, yeah, whatever, okay. <laughs> you know? um, uh, but I was the outsider, and it was fresh for me. And I think what it, the way I think about it now is that I needed God, and I also needed community, and I needed some organizing center for, the, for the, all the restless energy of my life. Mm-hmm. I was an athlete, but I could tell that I had peaked as a 14-year-old, and it was all downhill from there, right? You well, know? the Braves so, could still call. <laughs> so so that wasn't going to happen, and the romance was stormy, and we actually broke up that summer. And yeah, I was having awful skin problems and had horrible self-esteem issues that went with it. And I was just kind of lost. I mean, not just in the... Friends, now listen. Are you lost? No, not just in that sense, but but in the I was lost in my identity, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't know why I was why I was around. So when they gave me a message that 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 Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you're a sinner who needs to know that Jesus died on the cross for you and wants to be the center of your life. I think I even got the Four Spiritual Laws booklet uh, that weekend, you know, or shortly thereafter. And it all made sense to me. And so I, I plunged in literally and figuratively. Within a month, I was elected youth group president, which is really not a good idea. Um, <laughs> There's and, a reason we don't do those sorts of things anymore. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, just, I was there every time the doors were open. I was making up for lost time. I was there from Sunday morning at 9 until Sunday night at 8 you know, and Wednesday nights and, and reading the Bible voraciously. And, and so that was, I was a born again kid at a church that was interesting. It was Southern Baptist one year before the Southern Baptist convention controversy started mm. one year before the moral majority really got launched. Um, and though there, there were um, those dynamics brewing, I was, I was blissfully unaware of them. I was reading C.S. Lewis and Late Great Planet Earth and Why I Believe the Bible is Literally True and reading the Living Bible in the King James and um, somehow survived all of that as a a fiery, born-again evangelical Christian ready to convert everybody in my very secular high school. Well, there's no zeal like Uh, that of a convert. Yeah, I had the convert zeal. So how do you get from that to a call to ministry and that, and then, so there, there's, this is a multi-stage question. I'm interested uh-huh. in what a vocational call looked like for you and then how that fleshed out into the academy rather than the pulpit. Yeah. Um, as I reviewed my journals to write the, the uh, memoir, I discovered that, Within nine months of my conversion, I was journaling that I, I felt called to be a pastor. Nine months. Spring of my junior year. Okay. Um, and 
I understand now uh, that there were a number of people who came out of that church who expressed uh, a call to ministry. I think a lot of it has to do with the culture of the church. Um, uh, do you have a lot of good examples of ministers who you want to emulate? Mm-hmm. Do you have Do you have people talking about the joy and meaningfulness of a what we used to call full time Christian service? Right. Um, is there discussion about the life of missions and evangelism and the local church? And um, in other words, a, an environment of high passion uh, in which there's a history of people going from that church into ministry and a strong sense of purpose and, and ministers who you want to emulate, I think is part of the context in which that happens, right? Yeah. Uh, and a, a, lot, a lot of times, none, none of that is there anymore, right? Um, in churches today. But also, I remember vividly this thought. Um, this is the most important thing in the world. I finally discovered the most important thing in the world. How could I do anything else but spend my life doing the most important thing in the world, which mm-hmm. is Jesus' work, basically, you know? So when I went off to William & Mary, I joined the Baptist Student Union. Um, by the way, that's a whole another set of programs that has faded a lot, uh, the college ministry programs. Yeah. And, um, I've got the strong Baptist opinions. Ministry. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, so that program liberalized me a little bit. Um, this was still, it was before the conservative moderate split. So there was, I mean, there were, it was the Southern Baptists before they went their separate ways. And so various influences, various ideas and people, but it liberalized me in the sense that I, and I also was studying religion in the religion department there. So I learned there are Bibles besides the living Bible and the King James, right? And that there are books to read that are somewhat more sophisticated than Hal Lindsey. You know, and I yeah. kind of climbed the intellectual ladder. Um, my thinking broadened and, and matured, but my call to ministry never wavered. Um, so then I went to Southern Seminary, and while there, um, as a youth minister, it, um, it was fairly miserable, but I, I did it. Uh, I was actually a youth director as a, a college student, too, you know, 20 years old directing 18 year olds you know that that's the story um, that's how it goes yeah yeah i'm uh, making plenty of mistakes um a youth director in, in uh youth ministering at a big church in seminary um and all along it was a ministry path with a high emphasis on academics but while there i met glenn staffson fell in love with christian ethics and by my by my third year of seminary i was clear that i needed to get a phd i wasn't done learning I needed to do more. And actually, I had three interests at the time, uh, international relations, Old Testament, and uh, Christian ethics. And what's interesting is I've, even now, all these years later, I'm still pursuing all of those things. Um, I have a, you know, a book coming on Job, and I'm teaching international relations at Mercer in, in Macon. And of course, I do Christian ethics. So, so the, those, those things are all there. But I, I was surrounded by role models who were Reverend Doctor role models. Yeah. Who were who were church people and who were scholars and who were always doing both. Glenn Staffan was a good example. Um so so that's that and even though once I I, I, I then did my PhD at Union in, in Christian Ethics 
Union Seminary in New York, got a successful career launched and started writing and the rest is history. But I never was not doing local church stuff. Um, for many years, I was a non-paid pastor at a, at a, a seeker-type uh, Baptist church in West Tennessee. Uh, I was an interim uh, Presbyterian Church USA pastor for a while. That was fun. Three months, I was the, I was the local pastor. I actually preached through the Apostles' Creed during that time. There that you fun. go. Look at you being a presbyter. Um, yeah, presbyter. Um, and uh, I've been, I was interim pastor here in Atlanta at uh, First Baptist Decatur. So um, my identity as scholar churchman uh, is is was deeply embedded in who I am, and it's never changed. That's we don't have the theologian pastor like we used to in the United States. That used to be a thing. We don't. And in fact, sometimes it wasn't unusual, and it still does happen, to have people who were duly employed mm -hmm. um, teach, teaching at seminary or college during the week and preaching on the weekend. I mean, like every week. And I, I've done that. It's exhausting. Um, but it's also enriching. Uh, and the idea of the, of the theologian pastor who could be teaching somewhere, but instead has chosen to be bringing all that theological firepower into the pulpit. That's fairly rare, too. Um, and now, of course, there are employment challenges in both arenas, both right. on the church side and on the, on the academic side. There's not enough jobs to go around, so you wouldn't want to double up if you could, if you could make a, a job available to somebody else. That's what you should do. Yeah, and, and the institutions keep cranking out pastors and PhDs with nowhere to go. Yes, um, that is true, and uh, that is irresponsible. I remember studying this at one point when I was president of Society of Christian Ethics, asking the question, why? Why are there so many more PhDs than there are jobs? And there's a number of reasons, but one of them is that there is no central authority that says how many PhDs are needed. Yeah. Right. Anyway, that's a digression. So. Yes, it is. But so here's, so you've done the academic work, you've done the church work, you've lived in the world of ethics, you've lived in the world of the local congregation. How would you like to see these integrated better? Do they belong in the same space? Do they need to remain more separate? What does it look like when the relationship is healthy between them? Um, I think that I still believe in the paradigm that I was taught that at least theology, the theological disciplines of biblical studies, church history, theology, ethics, etc., um, should be rooted in living religious communities. And the people who are the thought leaders in those areas should be church people. Mm. Um, and so when I teach Christian ethics, I should be teaching out of a base of experience, not just once upon a time I used to go to church or once upon a time I was a pastor, but I'm still in the local church, still caring what happens there and attempting to train people who are mainly going to be in the local church um, and giving practically relevant insights so there's not a disconnect between 
whatever crazy stuff is happening in theology or ethics and what actually is possible or needed in the local church. Um, so I still think that's the right paradigm. Um, but I will admit to having now reached a stage in my career, and uh, this is uh, this is interesting because this is the first context in which this will be announced, in which I am personally making transition and leaving theological education at the master's level behind to uh, invest at other levels. Um, not because I don't believe in theological education, but because I'm ready to do something different after many, many, many years of doing theological education. Um, and if you want to ask me questions about that, I might even answer them. But, 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 but that is true here at the age of 58. Uh, this will be my last year of teaching uh, at the master's seminary level at, at Mercer. I'm going to be focusing at the undergraduate level and doing some doctoral level uh, supervision that I'm not able to announce publicly yet because some of the details are still to be worked out. It's very exciting. We should do a whole podcast on that idea and that transition. Yeah, when that, when that is available, when that information is, is out there, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. So this is sort of sneaky breaking news. That's right. And, uh, with that's a right, full report coming at 11 o'clock. That's right. But it is true that um, that is how I understand theological education. Now, it is true that there are other venues in which theologians and ethicists and so on are placed as scholars, including secular universities where there is no expectation of being of being connected to the local church. Um, and, and, of course, there's religious studies um, rather than theology, you know, that is done all over, the, all over the world and often has no connection at all. In fact, they're not supposed to have any connection to any mm -hmm. living religious community. This is an issue that came up all the time at the American Academy of Religion. What is the what is the relationship between scholars of religion who teach at you know University of Alabama um, and who believe that they are supposed to retain a kind of object objective distance from what they're studying? They're like scientists of religion. Mm -hmm. They study phenomena and they teach about that as opposed to practitioners within religious communities who are scholars, but they understand their scholars, their scholarship as in service to a religious community. They help Jews be better Jews, Muslims be better Muslims, Christians be better Christians or whatever, right? Uh, they are organic to a community as opposed to observers of a community from outside. I think that the academic ecosystem needs both and they both need to respect each other but understand that they're doing different things yeah so that's a little of what the religious aspect of the academy looks like when it's doing well what what do you when do you think the church is at its best um another way to ask you know, guys whether what is the role of the church in the world well i think uh, we are witnessing and right now in the middle of a reshaping of the church due to pandemic that that is going to be the subject of reflection for decades, long after we're gone. Um, I think we're looking at a, what now looks to be a one and a half to two year interruption of business as usual. 
I don't know if that's what you're seeing where you are, Jeremy, mm-hmm. but um, March 13th, 2020, everything kind of shut down and nothing has returned to normal since then. And it's not going to return to normal, presumably, until we have a vaccine and this pandemic has settled down and and that may be another year. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, so I think every aspect of the ministry of the church is now under reconsideration. Um, how do we finance the church? How, how do we gather? What are our goals when we gather? What does community look like? How do we use and not be used by our technology? How do we minister to children and youth? Um, how do we do pastoral care when, for example, there's large numbers of people you're not really supposed to get to or they're afraid to have anybody come see them? Um, on the other hand, how do we do pastoral care when you've got people who are desperately isolated because they're single or uh, in lockdown facilities? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is, what is space? What is a sanctuary in a, in a COVID world? What is sacred space? Um, and how does the church, while the church is, is fighting for air, fighting for its own survival, how does it still relate to to a society that is also dealing with horrific kinds of challenges um, that are sometimes pandemic-related, but sometimes not pandemic-related? Overall, it feels to me like like the church's public role has weakened. And of course in the U S the church is divided along the left, right line. Mm-hmm. So you've got the, you've got the church of the left and the church of the right. Um, and the loss of a, of a transcendent Christian voice that everybody takes seriously, um, is sad. And I don't see that. I don't see that changing until, until, something of our left-right fever breaks. And I wish that Christians could help it break, but right now we don't seem able to help it break very well. Do you have a, a vision for how we could do that? What the church's public uh, witness could do to help bring down the temperature? You know, um, my thinking anybody who's been following my work knows that I believed that Donald Trump was an existential threat to democracy and a really bad human being. And I'm hopeful that he is about to be defeated and will go to whatever angry cyberspace location he's going to go to. Right. You know? Um, and so for the first time I endorsed the presidential candidate, I endorsed Biden partly because I believe that. Um, but I consider that like an emergency exception to, to what I want to be doing, which is trying to communicate the wellsprings of the Christian tradition that that extend far beyond the U.S. environment um, and far beyond this era. In other words, if we live in the hothouse of America since 1968, and that's the only thing we're listening to, it's all about left, right, and abortion politics and you know, homosexuality and culture wars and stuff like that, we lose a longer memory and we lose a global perspective. 
So in my new book, After Evangelicalism, I'm calling for the longer memory and the global perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so basically, I'm a, I'm a center-left person politically who wants to see progressive social justice side stuff win um, and prevail in the public square. But I'm not that because I learned to be that in Culture Wars America. I learned that in the history of the tradition of Christianity and Christian ethics. I learned it by reading Vatican II social justice teachings, and I learned it by by reading Wesley and um, in the early church and um, the kingdom of God teachings of the 19th century and of Jesus. And so basically, I guess my answer to your question is, the only way we snap out of this fever and being and just being swallowed up in the parochial politics of late 20th and early 21st century America is by having a longer memory, a bigger grid, and um, access to a wider conversation. So part of what's coming for me, and this is part of the tease of the leak that will sometime be revealed on this show, is I am going to be getting uh, somewhat out of the U.S. environment in my work. I'm going to have a, um, a setting in which I will be engaging the rest of the world. Broader grid. And broader grid. And I'm hoping that that, that and, and dealing with social and theological problems and challenges from outside the U.S. will renew my own vision for what I say inside the U.S. Um, I'll be relating to people from around the world and seeing... Um, political, social, ethical challenges as these emerge. I think uh, that'll have me reading other voices and engaging in other contexts that will help to renew my thinking about this one. So deeper access to the tradition and a broader set of conversation partners, um, I think, is a way forward. It's where I'm going to go to. A closing hypothetical. You get a phone call the senior pastor of your church is feeling unwell and is concerned about bringing potential virus into the sanctuary this Sunday and asks you to preach. What would you say to your congregation this Sunday with the, it, the election may be decided by then right now. I just checked. It still hasn't been called. We are in a suddenly very important battleground state of Georgia what yeah. do you say to your congregation? Well, what I would want to say is what I just said, which is the first step, in my humble opinion, to beginning to, to restore a, a, a sense of normal is to, is to defeat Donald Trump and to start afresh. But the close close vote at every level means that we are still a deeply divided country and we need maturity and statesmanship and a willingness to listen um, to all reasonable voices Um, and that's what we should be praying for and and demanding of our leaders Um, and that it was a near miss we almost lost our democracy and we almost lost, we almost kind of uh, collapsed into our worst impulses as a nation. And now we have a chance for renewal. 
and, and the church should contribute to that renewal by articulating its deepest values like the, the sacred worth of every person, um, the, the, the value of God's creation, the need for justice with special concern for the most vulnerable, um, and uh, civil respect for one another across difference. Um, and, and we have a tradition, elements of a tradition, of social teaching that, that can be helpful in this conversation. And we should be drawing on that tradition and what we say to our public officials and, and, and in what we do as a church. So, so that's what I would say. Now, I mean, that, that would involve naming of political names in a way that a lot of times people are not comfortable with. So I'm not sure I would be invited into that to do that. Or I'm not sure I would, yeah, I should actually name those names, but that's what I'm thinking, and so that's what comes to mind if I answer your, your really good question. There you go. Well, that's thank you for, for that. That's a good place for us to to land the plane. And uh, we'll be back for more conversations soon. I've really enjoyed this one, David. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for joining us today on the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of Mercy University Center for Theology and public life. We are in our third season, and we are just getting started with it. So so put us on your favorites. Make sure you hit that subscribe. Leave us a a thumbs up. Leave us a heart. Give us a five-star review. It helps us find other listeners like yourself. Uh, So thank you for being a part of the work we're doing, and let let us know how we're doing. We want to hear from you. Uh, shoot us an email. Find us on our respective websites. You can look at uh, David's library of work at davidpgushy.com. All of my work is available at revjeremyhall.com. And uh, both of those will link you to our social medias. We're very responsive. And we really do want to hear from you. So thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for joining in the conversation. And grace and peace. We still don't know who the president is right now. But we wish you all of the patients in the world. Be nice to each other. We'll see you soon.